I frequently receive calls that begin, help, we think we have a Stark Law violation. If this happens, take a step back, take a deep breath, and follow my advice. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. My name is Bob Wade, and I am the host. Today, we're going to talk about possible Stark Law remedies. Frequently, I receive calls, like the intro says, where the client says, we believe we have a Stark Law violation. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes once you peel back the onion, you discover either the Stark Law does not apply or that there are potential defenses for the fact pattern that the client is is struggling with. I'll give you one example. I received a call from a prospective client, and the client only wanted me to review the self-report under the Stark Law Self-Disclosure Protocol. And he was an attorney, but he was really not functioning as an attorney. He was a CEO of a designated health service entity. And he said, Bob, I'm confident we have a Stark Law violation. I have calculated the amount that we billed Medicare during the defined period, Uh, that the violation occurred, and I believe we have to pay $2 million back to the government. And so he said, can you just look at my self-disclosure to make sure that I've hit all of the points in the self-disclosure? And I said, sure, I can take a look at it. And so he sent it to me, and I reviewed it, and then I called him back, and I said, well, you have hit all of the points, but the underlying basis for which you're reporting, I would like to actually take a look at the contract. Uh, Because in his mind that he was compensating a physician during a period of time where there was no written agreement signed by the parties. And he said the contract had expired and so therefore there was like a two, three year period where there was a Stark Law violation. Once he sent the agreement to me, yes, there was an expiration date and yes, the agreement expired by its terms, but there was an evergreen clause in the contract. And according to the contract, if the evergreen clause applied, then all of the terms and conditions would continue and the parties continued to perform. Uh, The DHS entity continued to pay consistent with the terms of the contract. So because of the evergreen clause, I told the client that you do not have a Stark Law violation. Fair market value was paid and this could clearly fit within the personal services arrangement or the fair market value exception. So the client asked me whether or not I would write an opinion for him, for his files, and I did. And so therefore, just by you know 
taking a step back and looking at the facts and circumstances, I save the client from actually filing a self-disclosure and potentially a repayment of $2 million by spending a few hours reviewing the underlying documents. So as we have discussed previously in Stark Integrity, the Stark Law is very broad in application. And it's brought in application because we use this legal term under the Stark Law called remuneration. And remuneration means any benefit. So as long as a physician is receiving a benefit, then the Stark Law applies because that benefit is deemed to be remuneration and that remuneration is deemed to be compensation. So anytime a physician is receiving a benefit, then the Stark Law would apply. And at the beginning of this episode of Stark Integrity, I will just emphasize that if you want, I have two slides that you could print out uh, that actually are what I call my Stark Law Cliff Notes and my Stark Law Remedy Slide. So there's two slides. So if you email me, I'd be happy to provide those two slides to you. Just keep them in your desk drawer. And then if a potential Stark Law violation occurs, you can pull out the uh, Stark Integrity, you know, Bob's Cliff Notes on the Stark Law and Bob's Remedy Slides to see whether or not uh, you could look at the facts of the situation and determine that you do not have a Stark Law violation. Now, the other aspect of the complexity of the Stark Law is that it is a billing statute, so there's no intent that anybody has to prove or the government has to prove that you intended to induce a physician. That is not part of the Stark Law. All you have to have is a financial arrangement that uh, that implicates the Stark Law. And if it implicates the Stark Law, you have to fit within one of the various exceptions. And if you fit within an exception, then you can bill, collect, and retain the reimbursement for the, per the services performed by the referring physician that you have the financial relationship with. The Stark Law has many operational challenges, and that's the reason why the frequency of potential violations exists is because all of the operational challenges designated health service entities like hospitals have in order to monitor compliance with the Stark Law. Well, first off, there are in a lot of hospitals, there are hundreds of financial arrangements that the hospital has with referring physicians. You know, in a typical you know, average hospital, you're probably dealing with, you know, three to 400 financial arrangements with referring physicians that may implicate the Stark Law. And so just the sheer magnitude of the financial arrangements causes a lot of complexity to operationalize the Stark Law. Second, the various organizations have different processes and procedures in order to get contracts signed. And so what you want to do is you want to streamline that process from a compliance perspective to make sure that it is a, a process that can be managed and there's appropriate oversight of that process to ensure that the contracts are being created, reviewed, and signed on a timely basis. And then there are also typically multiple persons in the chain. There are people who are discussing the financial arrangements with the referring physicians. There's the approval process that occurs. 
There is the documentation, usually by the legal department or outside lawyers, that will document the financial arrangement. Then there's operational challenges with respect to the payment of the financial arrangements to the referring physicians as to whether or not the compensation that's being paid or the reimbursement is appropriately authorized, whether or not it's validated with sufficient supporting documentation. There's also the tracking of the financial arrangements. And lastly is the auditing of the financial arrangements to make sure that every financial arrangement with the assumption that the financial arrangement has to fit within one of the exceptions that requires a written arrangement signed by the parties, that the compensation paid is consistent with the uh, contractual terms that the parties entered into. So the first thing you have to do if you believe that you have a potential Stark Law violation is to determine whether or not the Stark Law even applies. And this is where my Stark Law Cliff Notes slide would be beneficial. So first off, as I indicated, it's a billing statute. Secondly, it takes three components in order for the Stark Law to be implicated. And that is you need to have a physician, you need to have a referral, and you need to have either a compensation arrangement or an ownership arrangement uh, and that physician refers designated health services. So you need a physician who refers designated health services. And if you have either a compensation arrangement or an ownership or investment arrangement with that referring physician, then the Stark Law is implicated. And each of those have clearly defined parameters around each of those terms. And you can go back to some of my other episodes in Stark Integrity uh, that I discuss the, the minutia of each of those definitions. Then if you have determined that the Stark Law does apply, then you have to look at all of the exceptions and determine whether or not you have complied with all components of at least one exception. And each of the components under the exceptions are standalone. And that's what, you know, sometimes people believe that you have to look at the components of an exception in totality. Like one of the components of many exceptions is that the term has to be for at least one year. And as a separate component, it, it says that the compensation must be representative of fair market value. It must be commercially reasonable. Those are all separate components. And a lot of times uh, clients would say, well, you have to lock in the terms of the compensation as representative of fair market value for one year, and you cannot modify those terms. Well, technically, each of those components are separate standalone components. What you want to do is if the compensation terms are going to be modified, then each modification must be documented that the terms still remain commercially reasonable and representative of fair market value. And then if you believe that you have a financial arrangement that implicates the Stark Law and have not complied with all components of at least one exception, then you must either repay Medicare or Medicaid, especially if you're in the reprocessing period, just reprocess those claims, or you have to self-report. And that's with the assumption that uh, you cannot apply one of my defensive operational strategies that uh, if you believe that you have a violation. So now I'm turning to what I call the violation action plan. 
So under the violation action plan, there's just a series of things to think about with respect to the subject financial arrangement to determine whether or not you have a basis to say that we have complied with an exception or that the Stark Law does not apply. So the first thing is to think about whether or not even a referral exists. So take a look at the situation and make sure that with respect to the physician in question, we have a referral of designated health services coming from that physician. If the physician is only performing, by way of example, professional services and is not referring technical services, then it's possible that you do not have a referral of designated health services. Next, you want to see whether or not you have one of the accepted specialties under the Stark Law. And so frequently, clients would analyze a financial arrangement, and lo and behold, we have a physician who is in one of those accepted specialties. And as I have previously stated on Stark Integrity, there are three accepted specialties. The first off is pathologists, and that's for clinical diagnostic laboratory tests and pathological examination services. Radiologists, and that is both for the technical and the professional component. Now that is the radiologists that are doing diagnostic radiology, not interventional. Interventional, they do refer uh, technical DHS services, but diagnostic radiologists do not. And lastly, radiation oncologists for radiation therapy. So you may have an accepted specialty, pathology, radiology, or radiation oncology. Next, you may have a simple operational mistake. Let's say that, by way of example, that the contract specifies that the hospital has to pay the physician $5,000 a month, but somehow in the reimbursement process, that was up to $5,100. So now the compensation arrangement has been overpaid, inconsistent with the contract, by $100. Well, that was a mistake by the hospital. If the physicians recognize that, yes, that was a mistake of an overpayment of $100, it's my belief that if the physicians repay that $100 back to the hospital, recognizing the mistake, then you can still remain in compliance. Now, this is applying state law principles to the Stark Law, and I believe that that is wholly defensible in the context of a mistaken payment or possibly even a mistaken service uh, that was provided. So mistakes, as interpreted under your state law, could also be rectified through the recognition of the mistake and then also the repayment uh, of any amount that was mistakenly paid by the DHS entity to the referring physicians. The next analysis, especially if you have an arrangement that your failure is that it's not in writing and signed by the parties, is whether or not you have a W-2 arrangement versus a 1099 independent contractor arrangement. If you have a W-2 employment arrangement, then as I've previously expressed under Stark Integrity, is that you do not need to have the arrangement in writing signed by the parties. 
However, if it is a 1099 independent contractor arrangement to fit within the personal services arrangement or the fair market value exception, it does need to be in writing signed by the parties. So one way to to rectify the situation is to recognize that the services rendered by the referring physician was as a W-2 employee and not as a 1099 independent contractor. The next area of inquiry is whether or not you have a financial arrangement that is unrelated to designated health services. But in this context, it would have to be wholly unrelated to designated health services. The example that the regulations give is that the hospital has an apartment, and the apartment is given to referring physician residents. And in that context, if the hospital provides the space in the apartment, and let's say that that's not in writing, not signed by the the parties, it's not in their employment agreement, then one could conclude that the provision of the apartment for the use by the resident physician is not related to designated health services. It's wholly unrelated to designated health services, so therefore the Stark Law would not apply. Now, there are some examples out there. I've given you one, uh, but very few will fit actually into that category. So let's use another example where let's say that you have a physician who receives a stipend or honorarium to be a member of the Board of Trustees. Well, technically, anything that the board does actually touches the hospital operations, and those hospital operations affect the technical service. So therefore, it would be my reasoned conclusion that that compensation arrangement is related to designated health services. But that's just one thing to think about is whether or not the financial arrangement is wholly unrelated. The next is just scour the contract to determine if there is some provision in the contract that would generally cover the item or services that were rendered. Because a lot of contracts have some clauses in them that would say in any other related service or items that the parties agree upon. And maybe that general, very broad category in the contract uh, could cover the item or service that's in question. I've already talked as an example about the evergreen clauses. Now, there's two school of thoughts with evergreen clauses. Some attorneys would say don't put evergreen clauses in contracts because then there's no termination date. A lot of times, however, evergreen clauses do save the financial arrangement under the Stark Law. So it's I, I'm somewhat of a proponent of an evergreen clause or an automatic renewal unless you have a very tight uh, regimented process to monitor contracts so when they come close to expiring that you can enter into a replacement arrangement. Next, with respect to written arrangements, uh, CMS has come out and said you can cobble together various written arrangements and signatures uh, in order to justify the writing requirement under the Stark Law. So take a look at you know expense statements, receipts, uh, request for payment, authorizations, things like that to determine whether or not you have, uh, or even emails, uh, that you have something in writing that describes the financial arrangement and and then also that you have signatures, including electronic signatures on emails. Next, and I've indicated before on Stark Integrity that this is not an intent-based statute. However, 
I do believe that there needs to be intent to enter into a financial arrangement. Let me give you one, a couple of examples here. One example, let's say that you have a physician who happens to be stealing drugs from the hospital. Well, somebody could say, well, that implicates the Stark because, Bob, you said that it's any benefit. And obviously, by the receipt of those drugs, although by theft, uh, the physician is benefiting, then therefore that is considered to be compensation. In that type of situation, I do not believe the parties intended to enter into a financial arrangement. So therefore, the theft, in my mind, would not be considered to be compensation or remuneration under the Stark Law. Another example is that you rent space to a physician and unbeknownst to the hospital landlord, the tenant physician practice is taking up a closet or some expanded into another room. Now, if the hospital was not aware of the expansion of that space, I would say that there was no intent that the lease arrangement covered that space that the physician practice took. But once the hospital becomes aware, then that awareness would rise to the level if the hospital allowed the physician group to continue to use that space, that awareness would constitute compensation from the point of awareness forward. And finally, the last example is in the recent final rules that became effective in January of 2021, CMS gave us the limited remuneration to a physician exception. And so if you have a financial arrangement that is at fair market value and for services rendered and were also commercially reasonable, but you did not have the financial arrangement in writing and signed by the parties, then as long as in a calendar year you do not exceed the annual limit, and in 2021, when it was first instituted, was $5,000. For 2022, the annual limit is $5,270. So from tw in 2022, as long as in aggregate the items or services that are being compensated by the DHS entity without a contract do not exceed $5,270, then you can fit within the limited remuneration exception. Now, typically, just like other exceptions, that the compensation cannot be determined in a manner that takes into account the volume or value of referrals. And then if it's a lease of space of equipment, or equipment, then it cannot be based on a formula that uses a percentage of revenue or on a per click or per unit basis if the leasing uh, physician is the source of referrals for the, either that space or that equipment. So again, we have the limited remuneration uh, exception that uh, is under the Stark Law, and that is uh, the annual limit, and it can apply to multiple financial arrangements, but so there's one annual limit, and you can use that annual limit each year. Uh, so it's not limited like some of the other exceptions to use only once every three years. This one can be used annually, but the aggregate has to be uh, to that annual limit. And again, in 2022, it's $5,270. So now we've come to the point in Stark Integrity of this episode for the Captain Integrity Punch Points, and there's always three. And the three are number one, Captain Integrity Punch Point number one, is obtain my two Stark Law Cliff Note slides. First off, does it apply? 
do we have a compliant defense? And so if you contact me, I'm happy to send you those two slides, put them in your desk drawer, and pull them out uh, whenever you have a question, whether or not the Stark Law applies, or to determine if you have a violation. And again, you can reach me at Bob Wade, Captain Integrity, all one word, at gmail.com, or my law firm email address at bob.wade at btlaw.com. Captain Integrity punch point number two is carefully consider all exceptions. You only need to apply one exception, and it may not be the most obvious or relevant exception. By way of example, a lot of times, especially in a group practice, the group practice wants to fit within the in-office ancillary services exception, but because of the broad definition of group practice, uh, the arrangement may not squarely fit within the group practice definition. But if it's a compensation arrangement, then you can always turn to the employment exception or the personal services arrangement exception. So it may not be your normal exception like the in-office ancillary services exception, but all you need is one Stark Law exception. And finally, Captain Integrity punch point number three, consider all potential compliant resolutions. So in my resolution slide, go through each of those potential resolutions to determine if the possible Stark Law violation can fit within one of those what I would call a Stark Law fix. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.